Welcome to the 138th podcast, and the 108th is a city on a hill church. It's Thanksgiving time, and Pastor Mike has a special Thanksgiving message. It's taken from Second Chronicles 20, verse 17, and is entitled, Giving Thanks for God's Victories. Thanksgiving is under attack. Our national history is being distorted in an effort by the enemy to erase our Christian heritage. And to a large part, he's succeeding. We as God's people in a land built on a love for God and his son, Jesus Christ, need to know the truth so that we may stand against this evil assault. With that truth, here is Pastor Michael Clark. If you'd like to open up your Bibles, we're doing a special Thanksgiving message today. We finished the book of Philippians last week. Um, we're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. If you wonder where that is in your Bible, it's right after 1 Chronicles in your Bible. Old Testament, book of Psalms is right in the middle. Hang a left and you'll find 2 Chronicles if you go back a little bit to the left of Psalms. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. I've entitled this message, Giving Thanks for God's Victory. Giving Thanks for God's Victory. And please silence your cell phones. 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 17. We read, You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. Now, I, I don't want to dig too deep into uh, the Thanksgiving in America idea or history I want to stay here in the Bible this morning, but I do want to share something with you uh, because I think it's important that we get um, a reminder about why we celebrate Thanksgiving every year on the fourth Thursday of the month, uh, uh, first fourth Thursday of November. It's, it's something that is actually under attack now, which is unbelievable to me. I mean, they've been attacking uh, Columbus Day, now it's almost a crime to celebrate Columbus Day in this country. They've already removed Jesus from Easter and replaced Jesus with the Easter, uh, the resurrection with the Easter bunny and Easter eggs and so forth. Uh, Christmas, you know, they're trying to banish nativity scenes and get rid of Christmas carols that talk about the birth of Christ. <clears throat> but I always thought, what could they say about Thanksgiving? I mean, how could they come and attack the holiday of Thanksgiving? But they are. I read an article in the L.A. Times where a public school teacher was apologizing to her students for the treatment of the Native American peoples as, you know, we came in and, and stole all that they had and, 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 you know, pillaged the people and raped the land and all of this. And that uh, Thanksgiving was invented by the white man to uh, placate ourselves and to uh, make ourselves feel better about how terrible we were. Uh, to the Native American people. So now Thanksgiving is under attack. And they're teaching the children that Thanksgiving is something we should be ashamed of. 
uh, for uh, the pilgrims coming here and stealing the food from uh, the Native Americans to celebrate their first Thanksgiving. So I, I, I felt it uh, necessary to to read a little bit of the history of Thanksgiving as we're celebrating Thanksgiving and kind of as a reminder of of why we celebrate this great holiday. It's really a time of giving thanks to God. And of course, that's why the enemy uh, is against uh, Thanksgiving, just like uh, the enemies against Christmas uh, and Easter, because it's all about God. It's all about remembering God in our uh, in our national consciousness and memory. This is uh, I'm going to read a short statement from David Barton. <clears throat> Thanksgiving in America by David Barton. He says this, the tradition of Thanksgiving as a time to focus on God and his blessings dates back almost four centuries in America. While such celebrations occurred at Cape Henry, Virginia, as early as 1607, it is from the pilgrims that we derive the current tradition of thanksgiving. The pilgrims left England on September 6, 1620, and for two months braved the harsh elements of a storm-tossed sea. After disembarking at Plymouth Rock, they had a prayer service and began building hasty shelters but unprepared for a harsh New England winter, nearly half died before spring. Yet, persevering in prayer and assisted by helpful Indians, they reaped a bountiful harvest the following summer. The grateful pilgrims then declared a three-day feast in December of 1621 to thank God and to celebrate with their Indian friends America's first Thanksgiving festival. This began an annual tradition in the New England colonies that slowly spread into other colonies. Uh, this is now I'm going to quote from the Continental Congress of 1777, written by Samuel Adams and Richard Henry Lee, uh, who were signers of the Declaration of Independence. They said this in 1777, the Continental Congress. Congress recommends a day of thanksgiving and praise so that the people may express the grateful feelings of their hearts and join their prayers that it may please God through the merits of Jesus Christ to forgive our sins and to enlarge his kingdom, which consists in righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. 1777 in Congress, this was declared. Continental Congress, written by Samuel Adams and Richard Henry Lee. Here's another statement by Thomas Jefferson in 1779 regarding the history of Thanksgiving. I appoint a day of public thanksgiving to Almighty God to ask Him that He would pour out His Holy Spirit on all ministers of the gospel, that He would spread the light of Christian knowledge through the remotest corners of the earth, and that he would establish these United States upon the basis of religion and virtue. So much, of a, uh, so much for a separation of church and state uh, from Thomas Jefferson here. To the contrary, Thomas Jefferson is saying we are a Christian nation and we need to acknowledge uh, Jesus Christ and the God uh, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for all that he's given us as a nation. One more sentence here. 
paragraph. The first national Thanksgiving occurred in 1789, according to the congressional record for September 25th of that year, immediately after approving the Bill of Rights. Mr. Elias Boydenat said he could not think of letting the congressional session end without offering an opportunity to all the citizens of the United States of joining with one voice in returning to Almighty God their sincere thanks for the many blessings he had poured down upon them. And then there's uh, a couple of longer quotes from George Washington um, and, uh, and then uh, another quote uh, from the Congress in 1941 where, where they finally established the date of Thanksgiving being the fourth Thursday of November. So we have to kind of remind ourselves of these things, guys, because as, as a nation, we're forgetting our past. We're forgetting why we do what we do. And then there will be others who hate God who are going to come and redefine our past for us. Uh, and, and so um, remember, Thanksgiving is all about giving thanks to God for his blessings upon us. And his blessings have been so abundant for all of these centuries here. Uh, uh, in our great nation. Now, this message that uh, we're looking at this morning, this um, scripture in Second Chronicles chapter 20, really is a time of victory for God's people, and at the end of that victory, a, a great time of giving thanks. And it's, it's a wonderful story here. It's a, it's a very encouraging example of God coming to deliver his people and to rescue his people when they humble themselves and they seek uh, the Lord. Again, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, uh, Judah here, the nation of Judah, was in serious trouble. They were being invaded by three armies who had confederated together to come and attack them. And uh, Judah really couldn't have even probably uh, beaten one of these nations if they were fighting one-on-one. -on -one. But to have three of their enemies coming together as a confederacy to attack them, they had absolutely no chance of winning this battle. And it would have been the destruction uh, of, of their people. It would have been the destruction of their nation had they lost this battle and this uh, imminent war that was upon them. Now, for some context here, uh, if, you, if you read back, and you don't need to do this now, you could read this later, but if you read back, because this is a historical account of what happened, um, in 2 Chronicles chapter 18, we are uh, introduced to Jehoshaphat. Actually, we're introduced to Jehoshaphat as the king of Judah in chapter 17. Uh, but Jehoshaphat married into, uh, or his son married into King Ahab's family. Uh, Jehoshaphat's son married King Ahab and Jezebel's daughter. Now, you all know Jezebel. You all know who King Ahab is. He was the wickedest king in Israel's history. Jezebel was actually uh, the daughter of the high priest of Baal. And so, uh, she, you know, she was a full-blown witch, really, practicing uh, uh, human sacrifice and so forth. At this time, uh, this, is, this is what they did in the ancient world and worshiping other gods and so forth. And so uh, Israel was already on their way to destruction because they had abandoned God and they were worshiping other gods, Baal, Ashtoreth, Molech, etc. 
Judah was still maintaining the course. The nation of Israel divided under Rehoboam, King Solomon's son. The two southern tribes became a nation. Uh, Judah and Benjamin became the nation of Judah. The ten northern tribes became the nation of Israel. And oftentimes they were uh, at odds with each other. Oftentimes they were at war with each other. Judah and Israel were at war with one another. Uh, But because of Jehoshaphat's son, marrying into Ahab's family, and Ahab was a very powerful king, a very wealthy king, actually, um, it, it, it kind of uh, bred this alliance between Judah and Israel that was very unusual. And of course, it was wrong. Uh, the, the nation of Judah should never have allied themselves with the wicked nation of Israel and the wicked king of Israel, Ahab. And so Jehoshaphat, in, um, in chapter 18, he went to visit Ahab. They had become friends at this point, and they were related by marriage. And uh, Ahab was about to go to war with the Arameans. And Ahab wanted Jehoshaphat and Judah to fight along with Israel against their enemies. And Jehoshaphat went down, and, uh, and he was willing to participate. He said, our people are as your people. We're one with you. We'll help you out. And uh, the prophet Micaiah came and prophesied doom against Ahab, that basically they were going to lose this war and that Ahab was going to die in battle. And they didn't want to hear from the true prophet of God. They had 400 false prophets who told him, go forth and you're going to be victorious. But the one true prophet, Micaiah, said, you're going to go and you're going to be killed. uh, And the judgment of God is going to come upon you because you're a wicked man. And and that's indeed what happened. Uh, Jehoshaphat basically... Uh, ended up running back to Judah with his tail between his legs. He was almost killed in this battle, even though he wasn't supposed to be participating in this fight. Uh, the enemy uh, thought that, that, that he was Ahab. Ahab had actually told Jehoshaphat, here, put my crown on, put my robes on so that they'll think that you're me. And then the enemy went after Jehoshaphat and he hightailed it out of there. And a random arrow was shot by a random archer and killed Uh, King Ahab in his chariot. And uh, so uh, Jehoshaphat was pretty well defeated at this point. He had allied himself with a wicked king. Uh, He had almost been killed in a battle that he didn't even belong being in. He shouldn't have even been there. And uh, and he kind of came back humbled with his tail between his legs to Judah. Uh, And and, uh, Israel was was beaten by uh, the Arameans. So in chapter 19, as he comes back, and, and this is all kind of pertinent to the story here in, in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, because you see the, the, the background of how God is working in and through and with this man, uh, this king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, who was a good king. Jehoshaphat was a righteous king, as many of the kings of Judah were. But we read in chapter 19, after uh, Jehoshaphat had returned in verse 1, safely to his house in Jerusalem that he was rebuked by a prophet in verse 2 chapter 19 of second chronicles uh, verse 2 and Jehu the son of Hanani uh, the seer went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord so Jehoshaphat at this point is, is probably um, 
scared about what's going to happen to him. He saw what happened to Ahab. Ahab was a very powerful king. Israel was a very powerful, wealthy nation uh, at the time that Ahab was killed. And so he saw what happened to Ahab. He, he barely escaped with his life to get back to Judah and Jerusalem. And now he's being rebuked by a prophet of God. And so no doubt he's put on notice. He's scared. He realizes, um, you know, if this could happen to Israel, who's a much bigger, more powerful nation, if they could be defeated by their enemy, who are we? Uh, and, and so he was humbled. Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord? The prophet continues in verse three, but there is some good in you for you have removed the Ashereth or the, the female deities of, of fertility from the land and you have set your heart to seek God. So now Jehoshaphat has a choice as we all have a choice. You know, oftentimes we end up making mistakes. We're sinners. We sin, which is why we should be very patient with others when they sin, because we're sinners too, and we sin also. Uh, and there are times when we have made bad choices. We've uh, gone and hung out with the wrong people. We've done the wrong things. Uh, we get a little bit scared or very scared. We run back to God. And, and then perhaps there's even a, a rebuke waiting for us from the Lord that we knew better and we went and we did wrong even though we knew better and we did it anyways. And so, uh, you know, and we see the consequences of, uh, of those people who perhaps we were associating with and, uh, and, the, and the wrath of God comes upon them and we escape by the skin of our teeth even though we were there or maybe we should have been a part of it. Uh, and, and, and now the choice really is, what are we going to do going forward? We can't go back and change the past. We can't undo the bad choices we've made. But God gives us an opportunity to start fresh again and to turn to him and to seek him and to seek his ways. And so Jehoshaphat here has a choice to make, and he has no idea what's about to come upon him and upon his people. So verse four we read here, so Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem and went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. So he responded the right way to the discipline of the Lord. He responded the right way to the rebuke of the Lord. He humbled himself and he returned to the God of their fathers. And as, an, as a leader, he could lead the people. He was either going to lead the people away from God or he was going to lead the people back to God. And guys, we're all leaders. People are watching you, whether you think they are or not. As soon as you tell them you're a Christian, everybody's going to watch you. They may rib you a little bit, give you a hard time about your faith, but they're really trying to test you to see if your faith is real, if you're really genuinely, truly a believer in Jesus Christ or if you're just a phony, baloney Christian who goes to church on Sunday and then there's no difference the rest of the week from you and an unbeliever, the only difference is you show up to church on Sunday and, and they don't. And so, so people are watching you and you are leading people. People are uh, observing your behavior. They're observing uh, and listening to your words. And you're influencing others, whether you realize it or not. We're all leaders and we're all followers. And so keep that in mind. We're following the people that we listen to. We're following the people that we want to emulate. We're following the people that we respect. And there are people who are coming behind us who are following us. 
And so as the king, he was truly a leader of a nation. And as went the king, so often went the nation. So Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem. Again, he went out among the people. He brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. And he appointed judges, verse 5, in all the land, in all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. And he said to the judges, consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe or corruption. And so Jehoshaphat here makes the right turn. He turns back to God. And, and guys, that's always your choice. You could always turn back to God. No matter where you're at in life, no matter what you've been through, no matter what mistakes you've made in the past, it's never too late. If you're still here on this side of, uh, of, of heaven, on the earth side of heaven, you're still living and breathing in the land of the living. You still have a choice from this point forward. You cannot choose to change your past. You have to live with the consequences of the decisions you made, even the mistakes that you made. A wise man, a wise woman will learn from the mistakes that they made in the past. But the choice is yours. God's not going to force you. He's not going to require you uh, or demand this of you. He, he tells you, he commands it. But then it's your free choice as to whether or not you want to turn to God or you want to turn away from God. But a wise man, a wise woman, especially after a rebuke from the Lord or uh, coming to the conclusion of a series of mistakes that you have made, will always turn back to God. And that really is the evidence that you're a child of God. Uh, if when you're disciplined, you turn back to the Lord. For those who are disciplined and don't turn back to the Lord, but, you know, shake their fist at God and curse God, well, they're not God's children. And that just proves that they're not God's children. Di being disciplined by God is a good thing because the, the wicked, the, those who are evil, God often gives them over to their wickedness, to their evil, to self-destruction. So it's God's mercy when he rebukes us and he corrects us and he chastises us even as a father chastens a son and a daughter whom he loves. So Jehoshaphat is now telling the leaders of the nation, the judges and so forth, uh, also he'll tell the priests and the Levites to consider what you're doing. Uh, the Lord is, is with you when you render judgment. Uh, don't allow corruption. Don't take bribes. Have no part in unrighteousness. And, uh, you know, some people could have said, boy, what a hypocrite Jehoshaphat is. He was just hanging out with Ahab and Jezebel, those wicked people up there in Israel. Now he's going to come and preach to us. Uh, and, and that's part of the probably part of the cost that Jehoshaphat had to had to pay for his bad choices. But he still did the right thing. He's turning back to God and he's turning the nation back to God. And it's really going to prove to be critical in the survival of the existence of the nation of Judah because of what is about to come upon their nation. In chapter 20, after he has uh, exhorted and encouraged the judges and, and the Levites and the priests to do their job uh, in a godly way, in a righteous way, and to lead the people back to the Lord, he gets this news. In chapter 20 and verse 1, a disaster is coming. Now it came about after this, that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon 
together with some of the Muonites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Muonites are also uh, called the Ammonites. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram, or Edom. And behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is in Gedi. Uh, again, as I mentioned earlier, Judah was a, at this point a smaller, weaker nation, far smaller and far weaker. It was just Judah and Benjamin, two tribes that made up the nation versus the 10 tribes that made up the nation of Israel. And they they would have had a tough time fighting one of these enemies, even if it was just the Moabites coming against them to invade Jerusalem or the Ammonites. Uh, they would have had a very, very difficult time uh, defending themselves against these nations or against this nation. But to have all three of them come together at once and no doubt they they, you know, um, they smell blood in the water. They saw what happened to Israel. They saw that Jehoshaphat, you know, fled. Uh, uh, back to Judah and that Ahab was killed. They saw this and they thought this is a good time to pounce. This is a good time to attack Judah. They're weaker. Uh, the king just saw his, you know, his friend killed uh, by the Arameans. Let's go in and let's let's take Jerusalem. And, and there was great plunder in Jerusalem, lots of gold uh, from King Solomon's days, lots of silver and bronze, lots of loot and spoils of war for them to come and to uh, pounce upon. And so they thought, there's no chance. The, 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 uh, us three armies together, Judah has no chance. And indeed, Judah had no chance. There's no way they could have fought off uh, this attack. So a great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea. This would have been the Dead Sea to their east, out of Aram, and behold, they are in Engedi. So what, what they're saying is, these armies have already crossed over the Jordan River and crossed over the Dead Sea, and they're pretty much on your doorstep. They're just uh, a day or two away from being in Jerusalem. Uh, in Gedi was where David would hide in the caves when King Saul was chasing him. In Gedi is near the Dead Sea. Uh, it's near where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the caves of Qumran. And it's basically... Uh, on Judah's and Jerusalem's doorstep. They were right there and amassed this huge innumerable army of men of these three nations were ready to come and to just completely destroy uh, the Jews and Jerusalem and Judah. Verse 3, And Jehoshaphat was afraid and he turned his attention to seek the Lord and he proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. You know, it, the Bible's recording exactly what he f he felt. He was afraid. He saw what had happened to Israel. Uh, he knew that he had been uh, off track earlier. Uh, he was trying to get things right. He was trying to institute reforms, godly reforms into the nation as the king. Uh, he was doing the right things, but he was still terrified. Uh, he was he was dismayed. He was afraid. And oftentimes fear <clears throat> leads God's people to make irrational decisions because fear cannot operate or faith rather cannot operate where fear is present. A fear is a hindrance to our faith because in essence, fear takes our circumstances and makes our circumstances bigger than God. 
And when you begin to focus on your problem, you begin to focus only on the difficulties, the problems, the enemies that are coming against you. All of a sudden, your enemies, uh, you zoom in on your enemies, they become all you see. And you become terrorized and terrified, which is what the enemy, of course, the devil wants for us. The fear is from the enemy. It's not from God. Uh, and we have to choose to take our eyes off of our enemy, take our eyes off of our problem, off of our uh, uh, war or battle that's coming that we can't win, and take our eyes and put our eyes on Jesus, put our eyes on the Lord so that we can have faith to know God is going to deliver us. God is going to see us through. So he is here afraid and in his fear, rather than making <clears throat> some irrational decision uh, that he would regret, he turned his attention to seek the Lord. He did the right thing here. You see, he's learning his lessons. Instead of trying to figure this out himself and solve the problem in his own humanity, he turns to God and he takes his eyes off of his problem and off of his enemy and he puts his eyes back on the Lord. He turned his attention to seek the Lord and he proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. Verse 4. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, Art thou not God in the heavens? And art thou not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in thy hand, so that no one can stand against thee. So he gathers the, the people together. He gathers the people of God together in the house of the Lord, the temple. And as the king he begins to cry out before the nation, before his people. He begins to cry out to God uh, for help. And you notice here how he addresses the Lord before he comes and he makes his complaint known before he came, comes and makes his petitioner, his request of the Lord known. He comes and he reminds himself of who God is. God already knows who he is. He knows he's all powerful. He knows he's uh, omniscient. He's all knowing. He knows he's omnipresent he's the creator of all things but we forget who god is and so oftentimes when we address the lord in prayer we have to do this so that we can remember how big our god is because god is far bigger than any problem that we would ever face and so as he's addressing the lord he is speaking forth the nature the character the power of god O lord the god of our fathers art thou not god in the heavens art thou not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in thy hand so that no one can stand against thee. Very wise man, very wise ruler and king here because he's saying, God, this is no problem for you. You, you, you created the heavens. Uh, you're the ruler of all the kingdoms of all the nations and no one can stand against you. Verse 7, he says, Didst thou not O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, thy friend forever. And so now he's 
he's, uh, he's asking God this rhetorical question, saying, Lord, didn't you give this, this land to us? Didn't you clear out our enemies with Joshua and Caleb and, uh, and Moses bringing the people out of Egypt and through the, the desert into the promised land? Uh, Joshua leading the people across the Jordan River to come and take the land, giving you uh, God's people victory over all of their enemies here to conquer this land because it's the land that God promised us, the promised land from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Didn't you give it to us forever, he says? Verse 8, And they lived in it, and they have built thee a sanctuary or a house or a temple there for thy name saying, should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before thee, for thy name is in this house, and cry to thee in our distress, and thou will hear and deliver us. Such a great example of a godly man and of how really we are to deal with our enemies and the circumstances and situations that are far bigger than we can handle. Um, he's acknowledging God, addressing the God uh, uh, of heaven who is the creator of all things, power and might are in his hand. He's reminding God, didn't you give us this land? Isn't this a, pr a promised land that you gave to uh, your people and to your friend Abraham forever? Uh, he says, you know, we're here in your sanctuary uh, even as we were um, instructed to come here and to pray for you when evil comes, when sword comes, when pestilence comes. And what is he referring to here? He's referring to the prayer of dedication of King Solomon when King Solomon dedicated, who was David's son, dedicated this temple to God um, a, a couple of hundred years earlier. Turn back just a couple of chapters here to 2 Chronicles chapter 6. You'll see in verse 28 of 2 Chronicles 6 where Solomon is praying this beautiful prayer of dedication at the temple. 2 Chronicles 6 verse 28. Solomon said, if there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, if there is locust or grasshopper, if their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, verse 29, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all thy people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own pain, and spreading out his hands toward this house, then hear thou from heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart thou knowest, for thou alone dost know the hearts of the sons of men, that they may fear thee to walk in thy ways as long as they live in the land which thou hast given to our fathers. And so this is part of the prayer of dedication that Solomon gave that was recorded uh, for the people of Israel and the Jews. And uh, this is what Jehoshaphat's referring to. He's literally reminding God of, of the prayer that was made here um, in the temple by King Solomon when the temple was dedicated. 
Now, you hear God's answer to Solomon's prayer later, not right at that time when the prayer, when the prayer of dedication was given, but God appears to Solomon later and speaks to him and says this in chapter 7, verse 12. God tells Solomon, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place. He's speaking of the temple in Jerusalem. I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who were called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes shall be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. So Jehoshaphat is reminding God of the prayer of dedication and really of God's response to that prayer where God told Solomon, as it is recorded, yes, I will hear your prayers. If you pray to me here in your time of distress, if you cry out to me in your time of desperate need, I will meet you here and I will hear your prayers. The conditions are very simple. You must humble yourself. You must pray. You must seek my face. You must turn from your wicked ways. And then the conditions are right. I will hear your prayer from heaven and I will forgive your sins and I will heal your land. And so Jehoshaphat is a wise man. He's reminding God of God's promise. He's praying the promises of God. He's telling God, didn't you say in your word, Lord, didn't you make this promise to your people, Israel? We're about to be obliterated by your enemies, God. And we're doing, as a nation, we're doing what you called upon us, what you instructed us to do. Oftentimes, this was uh, repeated throughout America's history. In our difficult times, our nation would cry, call for fasts and, uh, and call for national prayers. And we still have a national day of prayer, thank God, that is celebrated uh, every year in this country. And this is where it comes from. So Jehoshaphat is reminding God of this. He's, he's uh, praying. He's humbling himself. He's instituted reforms to turn the nation back to God. He says this, continuing in his prayer, chapter 20, verse 10. He says, And now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou didst not let Israel invade, when they came out of the land of Egypt, they turned aside from them and did not destroy them. Behold, how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from thy possession, which thou hast given us as an inheritance. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on thee. They had no chance, no possible way that they could have won this battle. They would have all been killed or taken away. Uh, and it was war was brutal 
uh, war is always brutal, but war was especially brutal in these times. The women would be raped. Uh, the children would be taken as slaves. Uh, and all the men would be killed, sometimes tortured and killed, uh, as an example of, of, of what happens to people who lose a war in these ancient times as a, as a, a fear factor, intimidation. And so he's saying, um, God, uh, they're coming against us. They're trying to drive us out. These are the nations that you did not allow Joshua to destroy. When Joshua came into the promised land, they're rewarding us by coming to steal your possession. Will you not judge them? We're powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on thee. And so often, guys, that's the point that God is trying to get us to as his children, as his people, where we have no more self-sufficiency. I can't do it. I don't have the power. You know, the problem is we think we could figure it all out ourselves. It's human nature. We, we, we pray and then we think, OK, I, I'm going to pray. I pray now I'm going to go figure this problem out. I'm going to solve it. And God knows that. And sometimes he allows us to go and try and solve our problems and then it doesn't work and then we pray again and then we think but i could solve it i've got another idea better than the first idea and then we go and we you know use all of our persuasion our power of persuasion all of our connections and everything else and uh and we say don't worry god i can handle this i i, I can handle it you know I, i'm smart i can handle it i've got good connections we'll take care of it but i'll pray and, and, and then I'm going to go solve the problem. But see, there's times when you can't solve the problem. There's times where there's nothing you could do. There's nobody who can come in and save you. There's no one who can come in and deliver you from the situation that you're facing. And, and that is where really the rubber meets the road of our faith. And we actually truly have to cry out to God from the depths of our heart in total despair an agony and say, God, I can't do this. I can't fix this. I can't solve this. I need you to come into my life. And the God of, he of heaven, the God of the heaven of heavens, who created all things, the God who holds the nations in his hand, the God who has all power and might that no one can stand against you. But God, I, I can't do this on my own. I can't solve this one. I can't fix this one. And the Lord says, exactly right. Now I can show up. And I could do what I wanted to do all along for you, but you kept getting in the way. Now that you've removed yourself out of the way, now God can come in and God can shine. And God will then get all the glory for what he does. You can't take credit for what he does at that point. See, the problem is when we figure it out ourselves, we take credit for it. Well, we prayed and God gave me this great vision of how we could redeem ourselves from this problem, how we could solve this crisis. And, you know, and then I called in my, you know, my, my courtiers, I called in my consultants, my counselors, my advisors, and we formulated a strategy. And the strategy was this, and here's how we did it. And, and in the end, what you're doing is you're taking credit yourself for the deliverance. And, uh, and sometimes that works, but sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it's just too great of a problem. It's too big of an enemy. You can't fight it. You can't win. You can't defeat it. You can't figure it out on your own. And that's when God comes in with his power and his glory and his might. And all you get to do is watch. You're an observer. You're not a participant at that point. So you can't take any credit. So God gets the glory. 
all the glory for what he does in your life. He had to humble himself. He had to seek the Lord. He had to admit his weakness. He said, we are powerless. Quite the opposite of the message in our culture. You're powerful. You could do anything you set your mind to, our culture says. It's a bunch of nonsense. Jump off a skyscraper and see if you can fly. You're not that powerful. You can't do anything you want to. You know, there's a song that they sing, I believe I can fly. No, you can't fly unless you're in an airplane. You can't do whatever you want. You can't have whatever you set your mind upon. That's a lie. You're not powerful. Who are we? We're nothing compared to God. We're nothing. We're nothing compared to the devil, the enemy. We've got no power of our own to fight these enemies. We're just weak, weak human beings made up of flesh and blood, made up of dirt and dust that God breathed his life into. We have no power except for the power of God in our lives. And it's a delusion to think we're powerful. The only power that I have is the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God. I have no power of my own. And God will remind us of that sometimes. He'll humble you to remind you if, if, if you need reminding you're powerless against some things. There's nothing you could do against some enemies. You have to turn to God. He says this, we don't know, he says, we don't know what to do, Lord, but our eyes are on thee. Again, great example for us. He took his eyes off of the problem <clears throat> where he was afraid and he put his eyes on God. And he said, Lord, you're our only hope here. You are the only way out for us. <clears throat> Verse 13. And all Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants and their wives and their children. You just imagine the scene. They were there with their little ones, with their kids. I mean, they would take the kids and they would dash the heads of the children against the rocks. The enemies would come and just grab the babies from the mother's arms and dash the baby's heads against the rocks. And, and, and they're just there before God, just humble and just desperate before the Lord. All Judah with their infants, their wives and their children. Then, in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mathaniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. And he said, Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not fear or be dismayed, because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Here's the response from God through the prophet. Do not fear. Oftentimes that's the first word that the Lord will give to his people is do not be afraid. Do not fear. He says, don't be dismayed. Obviously, he was dismayed. He didn't know what to do. He was afraid. We already read that. And so the first message to him is, you don't have to fear. You don't have to be dismayed because of your enemy, because of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. 
You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves, stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Beautiful response to the prophecy of God. Basically, nothing had changed. They didn't have some army come to rescue them. They didn't have some you know, great warrior show up all of a sudden and say, hey, I'm here. I heard you're in a fight. You need some help. I brought my boys with me. We're going we're gonna to go and take this, th- these armies down for you. No, there was no real solution to the problem that God gave. He just said, don't worry about it. This isn't your fight. It's my fight. You're not going to even have to fight. You just watch and see what I'm going to do. You can observe. You can go put yourself on a high point and observe what I'm going to do for you and what I'm going to do to your enemies. And with that word, that very simple, short prophecy from the Lord, Jehoshaphat knew it was God speaking and he fell down with, on his face before the Lord and the whole nation. You imagine the scene in the temple falling on their face before God. What a powerful scene this is. Nothing's changed. Their enemies are still just a day's march away. They still have no real hope, humanly speaking, but they receive the word of the Lord, the prophecy of God. They have the promise now to stand upon. God is going to deliver us. And guys, you and I have many precious promises given to us in the word of God that we can stand upon when we're facing our enemies, when we're facing our obstacles, when we're facing the, the, the hindrances and, and the things that come into our lives, the stumbling blocks that we can't deal with. It's interesting that there's three armies here because there's always shadows and types that you could pull from the Old Testament and apply to the New Testament. And I've heard Chuck Smith teach on this, that, uh, that for us, it's, it, it's the equivalency of the world the flesh, and the devil, our three enemies as Christians in the New Testament, the world, the flesh, and the devil, all coming against us at the same time. In our flesh, we can't resist. When our our flesh is tempted by the sins of the world and the alluring draw of the world, which is activating the the flesh in us that's desiring and lusting for the things of the world, And then you have the devil who's coming and whispering in our ear and setting up circumstances to tempt us to go after the things of the world to satisfy our flesh. In in our flesh, humanly speaking, we can't resist that. We'll fall headlong into sin and and self-destruction. And so we need God's help. We need God's power so that we can overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil because we don't have the strength to overcome these temptations on our own and these enemies on our own we have to humble ourselves lord i can't i can't fight this this is too much of a, a, a of a power over me this thing is has too much of a grip on me lord but i know you can defeat my enemies i know you could set me free from this bondage and this slavery of sin you could give me victory against my enemies and so he bows his head toward the ground They fall down before the Lord. 
the Levites and the sons of the Conanites, the sons of the Korites, verse 19, stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice, a very loud voice. So they began to sing praises to God before the victory had come. And they rose early in the morning. They went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat's Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. So, you know, they were all on fire for the Lord the night before, but it's the next morning. And God had told them, you're going to go and face them. He says, you're not going to have to fight, but you're going to go and prepare yourselves. You're going to station yourselves. You're going to stand and see the salvation of the Lord. They still went forward uh, with their armies and they went to go in obedience to what the Lord had said and to watch what the Lord was going to do. Jehoshaphat is encouraging the people. He's exhorting the people. He's reminding the people, don't be afraid. We have the word of the Lord. We have the promise of God. Put your trust in the Lord your God and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire as they went out before the army and said, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. Really amazing scene. They have this army of soldiers and in front of the soldiers, they have these singers, the Levites and the, and, and the, the priests, the ones who were uh, the singers of Israel, of Judah. And they were singing the praises of God. So they were going forth. It's all a picture, guys, of spiritual warfare. That as you sing, as you praise the Lord, God comes in response to our singing. He inhabits the praises of his people. The enemy flees when God is praised by God's people in worship because the enemy hates Jesus. The enemy hates God. And when we sing and praise God, the enemy just has to go. And God comes and fills us and fills uh, our hearts and our, our homes and our lives. <clears throat> and they were singing praises to God as they went out uh, to, to see what God was going to do to their enemy. Verse 22, when they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. For the sons of Moab, uh, Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. Because remember, these guys were a confederacy of nations that didn't like each other. They were kind of like the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of a thing. They all agreed that they didn't like Judah and they wanted to take the spoils from Jerusalem, but they didn't like each other necessarily. Uh, and so somehow some rift began with these three armies. Two of the armies went and turned on one of the armies, perhaps over the distribution of the potential spoils of war, not wanting to share it three ways. They were going to share it two ways. And then these two armies turn on each other and they just annihilate one another. And the nation of Judah is up on this high hill of Ziz looking down toward En Gedi where they could see this happening. They're observing this enemy turning on each other and destroying themselves without them having to shoot an arrow or lift a finger. They'd help destroy one another. When Judah came, verse 24, to the lookout of the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude and behold, they were corpses lying on the ground 
and no one had escaped. It was a total uh, defeat for their enemy. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found much among them, including goods, garments, and valuable things which they took for themselves more than they could carry. And they were three days taking the spoil because there was so much. Then on the fourth day they assembled in the valley of Berakah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore they have named that place the valley of Berakah until today. And every man of Judah and Jerusalem returned with Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. The salvation of a nation. They would have been obliterated by these armies had they had to fight or had they been besieged. And yet we have a, a, a very clear pattern here, not, not a formula, but a pattern of how we can take and apply these truths to our lives when we're dealing with enemies that are bigger than us. We're dealing with situations that we can't handle. And, and the Lord is faithful, guys. He's faithful to keep his word to you. You have to take your eyes off of your enemy. You have to take your eyes off of your problem. And you have to come before the Lord. You have to humble yourself. You can't do it on your own. You have to admit that you're powerless to solve it on your own. You have to genuinely, sincerely have the Lord search your heart and say, Lord, if there's anything in my heart that I've done wrong that I need to repent of, confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then you just cry out to him and say, Lord, I can't, I can't do this. I can't solve this. I can't fix this. I can't fight this. And the Lord says, perfect. That's exactly where I want you to be so that you could stand still and see the salvation of the Lord your God with you. We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, email us at coahpodcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church, Tehachapi, California.